0: Good morning, friends. Good to see you this morning. Let me invite you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 10. If you came without a copy, there's one in the, under the chair in front of you somewhere. But uh, whatever version you have, use it to follow along. Make sure I'm not making stuff up, but preaching what's there. Our passage today uh, continues in this middle section of Mark's gospel. In this middle section, Jesus has uh, turned and is headed towards Jerusalem for the uh, final event, as it were, his death and resurrection um we've entitled this middle section on the way because he is literally on the way that phrase comes again uh comes up again today it's a time when he uh, spent most of his time training his uh disciples uh equipping them and uh teaching them today will be no exception as they will figure uh, prominently in this uh, larger passage of which we will only get through part of this morning. So just, uh, settle back in your chair and wipe your brow because we won't go through three points today. We will, uh, use our time. Well, we want to leave, uh, plenty of time for the Lord's supper as well. Let's read our passage to begin with and, uh, I'm going to read uh, through verse 22 this morning. So let me read uh, Mark 10, 17 through 22, and be sure to follow along with me in your Bible. Here's the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look into these challenging verses uh, this morning. And Father, we come now... uh, And we confess that we require your help. I require your help to preach your word clearly this morning. Uh, We require your help to hear your word, to hear you speaking, uh, to hear the truth. Lord, we pray that your word would comfort us where appropriate, that it will challenge us where appropriate, even perform surgery where it's necessary. Father, help us to be open and attentive to what your word has to say to us today. We commit our time to you. Pray all this, Savior, in your precious name. Amen. Well, there are several versions of the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, Perhaps you've heard it. I first uh, heard it uh, connected uh, with the well-known Navy pilot, Pappy Boyington. Uh, in his infamous Black Sheep Squadron. Uh, Boyington and his fellow pilots operated from various islands in the South Pacific uh, during World War II. And to pass the time when they weren't flying missions, they would catch monkeys and turn them into pets. Uh, And to catch them, they would uh, find a bottle of some kind Uh, whose mouth was large enough for the monkey to put its fist through. And then they would drop a penny in the bottle, which rattled around inside, and they would leave it out where the monkey could find it. And of course, once the monkey discovered this bottle and the penny rattling around inside, it would insert its hand and take the penny in its grip. It was then that the flyers could easily catch the monkey. Because once the monkey had the penny in its grasp, it would not let go, and that meant he could not escape. Out of it, uh, One of its hands was stuck inside that bottle, balled into a fist uh, that was larger than the mouth, and of course it could have let go easily if it wanted to, but the monkey wanted the penny inside the bottle more than anything. While there are no monkeys involved, this is the very thing that's going on in our passage this morning. Instead of a monkey, we'll find a wealthy young man, and we'll see him holding his wealth and possessions in a death grip, much like a monkey in that situation would. His riches had become an insurmountable obstacle that kept him from entering God's kingdom, that kept him from entering eternal life in heaven, that kept him from finding salvation in Jesus the Messiah. What we're going to discover this morning is the insurmountable obstacle of wealth. What we'll hear from Jesus is that wealth is not just a hindrance to becoming a Christian, Wealth makes it impossible to become a Christian. Now, if you don't believe that, you'll have to come back next week to hear part two where those very words come out of the mouth of our Savior. Wealth is an insurmountable obstacle to knowing and following Jesus Christ. Now, I've heard the thoughts in your head just now and some of you have thought to yourselves, well, I'm so glad I'm not wealthy. <laughs> I am so grateful that I'm not rich. I struggle to make, uh, pay my car repair bills. But yet, here you are this morning at New Covenant, all five of you, having all driven separately, uh, you might struggle to pay your, your, uh, your kid's college tuition. Uh, yet, your kid is in college. Compared to a relatively small segment of the population in America, it's true, you're not wealthy. But compared to uh, what people refer to as the two-thirds world, Each one of us sitting here this morning is actually quite, quite wealthy. And many of us have the same death grip on our money and possessions that this young man does. And this is why you and I need to hear Jesus teaching on wealth and possessions today and probably next Sunday as well. Because Jesus says wealth is an insurmountable insurmountable obstacle to entering the kingdom of God. It is impossible to become a Christian while clinging to our wealth. So let's study this warning on this insurmountable obstacle. Uh, I want us to hear and understand Jesus' warning here in verses 17 to 31. And we'll see him develop and talk about this insurmountable obstacle Of wealth through three statements in this passage he makes three statements on this insurmountable obstacle the first station the first statement that he makes is about uh, what is humanly unthinkable Jesus calls this wealthy man to do what in his mind was humanly unthinkable And there is a good chance that Jesus uh, will summon some of us in this room to do what is humanly unthinkable, at least in your mind. Let me point out three things uh, about this man. First of all, I want you to see his urgency. Uh, He's not a casual man at this point. Uh, He he approaches Jesus with a burning question. Look at verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey. Let me pause there. This is a reminder from Mark, as I mentioned, that Jesus was still headed towards the city of Jerusalem where he would be crucified. At the beginning of this chapter, this is a very small map, and I'm sorry for that. Um, We saw him much of the time in and around the region of Galilee and even further north, up in Caesarea Philippi. But we saw him begin his way uh, down uh, to Jerusalem. He was rejected by the Samaritans and uh, came across on the other side, other side of the Jordan River, and we saw him here last Sunday morning. Let me zoom in a little bit and see if you can see that. Yes, here he is, over in this vicinity, and he's now headed due west uh, to where he will eventually reach Jerusalem. And as he resumes this journey, a Jewish man runs up to him uh, in this uh, verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. Uh, Matthew's account uh, says that this was a young man. Luke's account refers to him as a ruler, perhaps the ruler or the leader of a synagogue. He falls to his knees before Jesus, demonstrating his reverence for Jesus and his respect for him. And then this burning question comes spilling out of him, the the question that brought him running to Christ at the end of verse 17 and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is no idle question. This This is a question about his eternal destination. And uh, he approaches Jesus with the words, good teacher or good rabbi. Jewish rabbis were uh, distinguished and honored in Jewish culture. Uh, And this young man, uh, his words treat Jesus as such. They're a further demonstration of his respect for Jesus. And because Jesus was a respected teacher, well known by reputation, He comes seeking Jesus' expert opinion on how he can attain eternal life. He wants to know how he can be sure of his final salvation beyond this present life. He he came hoping that Jesus would remove any remaining doubts about where he would spend eternity and so this gives him this sense of urgency how he runs toward Christ and falls at his knees to express this serious and vital concern to his to his mind this brings us to a second thing we see about this man we see first his urgency as as he approaches Christ but then we see his methodology he believed that there was something he could do, something, some act he could perform to obtain eternal life. And he reveals this in his question that we've already read. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's assuming that he's already good. He asks if there was anything left outstanding. Is there... Anything remaining for him to do? Had he overlooked anything? And Jesus replies in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now Matthew's account says there's only one who is good. And Jesus is challenging his definition of Goodness. How did he define goodness? Why are you calling me good? Of course, we know that Jesus is the divine son of God, but doubtful that this young ruler knew that. And Jesus informs him, only God is good. Uh, There are no humans who are good. And he's the source of all goodness, this this God I'm, I'm mentioning. And it's as though Jesus asked the man, who told you you were good? I had a good pastor friend who uh, worked in the area some years ago. His name was Jim Meisner. He was a he was a great guy. He took a lot of us young whippersnappers under his wing. And Jim would always greet you with, Hey, bro, how's it going? Or how are you? And I would mistakenly reply, I'm good. And Jim would then say, who told you you were good? Who told you you were good? And now Jim was, of course, messing around with me. But it's true, isn't it? Who told you that you were good? So often in the church in America, we have this notion that basically uh, humanity is has a spark of goodness in it. Have you heard that before? There's a spark of goodness there 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 is good in him. I know it, as uh, Luke Skywalker would say. Uh, we think we come into the world morally neutral. Well I, I have news for you we don't come into the world morally neutral. We come into the world as as the Bible says, enemies of God um Listen to what God actually says about you and me. Don't take my word for it by any means. You know, because I could be wrong. But let me just read you what God says about the human condition. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Romans 3:11 through18. Who told you you were good? Well, Jesus moves on from uh, the question about goodness. And he says to this young man in verse 19, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. These are taken from the second table of the Ten Commandments. Uh, these commandments have to do with how humans relate to each other. Obedience to these commandments is fairly obvious and relatively easy to detect. Um, the people around you can see whether or not you're honoring your father or mother, or whether or not you're committing murder or stealing or Things along those lines, they're fairly obvious. And R.C. Sproul even says this, Jesus started with the easy ones, the ones that even unbelievers sometimes keep by means of civic virtue. And what he means is that no one likes to have their personal belongings stolen. So even a large portion of the general public, even unbelievers, refrain from stealing and discourage others from stealing. So many... Keep this just because it's it's convenient and it's helpful. So these are the easy ones. And and the young man replies in verse twenty, and he said to him, "Oh, listen to this cock-a-doodle-doo, teacher! All these I have kept from my youth." When he hears what the law requires, he shouts triumphantly that he has kept all these since his bar mitzvah, since he was 12 years old, uh, the time when uh, he became responsible for keeping God's commandments as a Jewish young man. And he had been obedient to all these, and you may doubt that, but Paul said something similar in Philippians 3, Paul uh, describing his pedigree it says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And so, uh, similar to the Apostle Paul, this young man utters his triumphant little uh, cry of, I have kept these. And, and we see that uh, his methodology is based on his performance. It's a works-based religion how he lives, on how well he has kept God's commands. Well, uh, we've seen the urgency of this young man. We've seen his methodology. There is one more thing I want to point out to you here, and that is his idolatry. He was great at the second table of the Ten Commandments, not so great at the first table. See, he he was clearly violating the first commandment: "You shall have no other gods before me." We'll see this unfold. Look at verse twenty-one with me now. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This is really key, and I want you to please stop and pay attention to this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This reveals us uh, reveals to us the motivation. That's operating behind what Jesus says next. He doesn't say what follows to bring the hammer down on this young man. He doesn't. Uh, he's not trying to be intentionally harsh or critical of this young ruler. He said the words that follow out of love for this man. This is not probably not the kind of love that you're thinking of right now. It is not that Jesus suddenly welled up with sentiment. It is not, and I don't mean to be flippant or blasphemous, it's not that Jesus cocked his head and said, oh, he's trying so hard. You know, like we look at a, a, you know, puppy dog or something, again, not trying to be facetious. That's the kind of love we think of he felt we think that jesus felt sorry for this man and perhaps that's true, true to some extent but this is not uh, this is not mere sentiment the word for love is agape perhaps you're familiar with that greek word we've mentioned it a time or two uh, agape love is different it is self-sacrificing other-centered Action-oriented love. It has three hyphenated uh, words that describe agape love: self-sacrificing, other-centered, action-oriented love. It, it it does not necessarily involve emotion. It's not feeling-oriented love. It is action-oriented love jesus loved this young man he cared about this young man one of the absolute best for this young man and what was the absolute best for this young man to hear the very best thing for him to hear from the lips of christ would have been to hear that he could be delivered from the power of sin delivered from works-based religion Uh, to personal trust in god's messiah jesus which would ultimately result in his entrance into god's eternal kingdom the thing he was so concerned about he he loved this young man and wanted the best for him this motivated him to say what came next friends don't believe the lie that it's kind not to confront someone in their sin I mean, that's a big motto these days, isn't it? Be kind. It's even on the back of my car. (laughs) It is not kind to see a friend heading off into sin and say nothing. You think that's loving? Is that loving? I don't want to cross them. I don't want to start an argument. I might lose their friendship. What your friend needs. Spoken in love is the truth. Is the truth. Now I've had people who have spoken the truth to me in a very unloving way. That's no fun. That's not good. But Jesus, motivated by love, says something. Our love for those around us motivate us to say something Uh, don't give in to this be kind nonsense when it comes to talking about something yes be kind of course Uh, especially towards those of the household of god but speak the truth in love which is what we see jesus doing here and it is this love that motivates him to say what he says next From the motivation for his words, we see next the content of his words as verse 21 continues. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Through these directions, Jesus is really pointing out the first commandment. Verse 19 referred to the second table of the Ten Commandments, those related to human relationships. But verse 21 here gets to the heart of the first commandment. Uh, The commandments... uh, uh, the first table of commandments has to do with our relationship to God. And specifically, the first says, you shall have no other gods before me. It would be, it will become clear in verse 22 that indeed he has put other gods before the one true God of Israel. See, his performance might look good on the outside, but inside his heart is not in proper alignment. And look at Jesus expose this idolatry by asking him to do what was humanly unthinkable. To answer the man's original question, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus, I want to know. I want to know. And he falls at his feet. Good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus tells him, Sell all that you have. Give the proceeds to the poor. And then you come and join my traveling band of disciples. I want you to leave it all behind. As one of his disciples, he would enter a community of disciples A community that depended entirely on other people to meet their needs. You think that might have been a little difficult for this guy? Jesus asks him to do the humanly unthinkable. Leave everything and follow me. This is a a, a sweeping change. This is a, a radical change of direction. What we would call repentance And he is asking this young man to take the radical step of submitting to God's rule to give God control over every aspect of his life including his wealth. And to this man, Jesus has just asked the humanly unthinkable Now, while God doesn't usually ask you and me to to leave everything behind in order to join an itinerant ministry, he does ask you and me to take the radical step of submitting every aspect of life to his control. Yes, he does ask that. He asks us to submit every aspect of life to his control he also calls us to do the humanly unthinkable well look at the man's tortured response in verse 22 it begins disheartened by the saying Uh, notice the word disheartened um the same term is used to describe a dark and stormy night in uh, the greek language it, it, it disheartened means sometimes we use the expression his face clouded uh, it is that kind of idea he became gloomy uh, his his face physically changed its appearance at this challenge from jesus and note the reason for the gloomy faces. 22 continues. Disheartened uh, by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Great is a, uh, refers to a large but indefinite number. It, he had a great many or a great number of possessions. He had many possessions. And it's these possessions that he had put before God that he has been worshiping instead of God. And so what Jesus' line of questioning does is exposes his idolatry from the first table, from the first commandment, and it reveals to him that he had not kept the first table of commandments. And as a result, he walks away saddened. He walked away from Jesus, and he walked away from eternal life. Hey, Jeff, would you turn the fans on, please? He walked away from eternal life, the thing he was so desperate for. Jesus really had asked him for the humanly unthinkable. And he could not surrender his possessions to Jesus or his wealth. He could not give God control of every area of his life. He could not give God control of his wealth. And and what his wealth, uh, what he acquired by that wealth, and that was great possessions. I wonder if perhaps... Christ might be asking you to do what is humanly unthinkable. What treasure is your fist wrapped around stuck in a bottle and it's making a monkey out of you? Maybe for you it's possessions or or. Maybe it is financial, just like this man. You love your, your income and what your income can secure for you. And don't take that away, whatever you do. Maybe what your fist is wrapped so tightly around is your personal comfort. Boy, that's never an idol, is it? Whoa. Well, And then 2020 happens. And we're drastically shown how much we worship our personal comfort. Don't tell me to wear a face mask. After all, right? And didn't that expose how we worship our personal comforts and freedoms? You know, this is one I don't like to think of. Maybe your fist is wrapped around your children. Or family don't mess with my family would Jesus ask you today in love to say you let me have complete control of your family do you think you're keeping them safe do you really think you're keeping them safe he's the one that keeps them safe And perhaps you need to give your children to the Lord. You know, sometimes we do that up front here through something called an infant dedication. And I ask parents to make a vow. And one of the vows they make is that they will release their child to the Lord all the days of their life. It's easier said than done, I think. What's in your fist this morning? What's your hand around? Holding so tightly that it can't get out of the bottle. Christ calls us each to do the humanly unthinkable and let go of it. Now you may struggle with knowing how you can do that. You might have no idea how that's possible. Well then, you'll need to come back next Lord's Day morning when we move from the humanly unthinkable to the humanly impossible. That's six days from now. Christ Jesus, uh, this passage confronts us in so many ways. It is unpleasant to sit and think about the meaning of these words. Because we realize that it might not be wealth, but each of us surely, or at one time, has had something uh, in, we have held on to something with a death grip and have refused to let go of it. And so whatever it is for the saints in front of me and for myself included, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would uh, show us how to release this and allow you to take control of it, to have complete control of it. Lord, help us to surrender uh, to your sovereign purpose for our lives. Jesus, I ask this in your precious name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now, and I'm going to ask the gentlemen who are going to help me to come forward, please. Jamie, can you grab? And even here, Jesus teaches us that these are symbols and that they stand for something, his body that's broken and his blood that would be shed, uh, poured out uh, the next day. And so we pass these elements and we take them, but we take them with caution. We take them thinking about what we're doing. We don't take them carelessly And by carelessly, I mean that we recognize that these stand for something. They stand for the body and blood of Jesus Christ and his payment for our sins. And so they should not be eaten and taken like juice and crackers because they are clearly not that. And so I encourage you to be thoughtful as you take the elements of the Lord's Supper you don't have to be a member of this church body, but you must be a member of the larger body of Christ. You must be sure that you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that you have you are relying on his atoning death as the payment for your sins. And uh, I encourage you, uh, unless you're absolutely sure, to not let your children participate. Unless you're absolutely sure they've trusted in Christ, and that they've demonstrated that, that they've borne some kind of fruit, then it's better simply to let them wait and watch what you're doing so you can explain it to them later on. I'm going to ask Jamie if you would return thanks for the bread. Heavenly Father, we don't take this lightly, Lord, that you This is Christ's body broken for you. Let's take the bread together.